Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Hannah McGregor. And I'm Marcel Cosman. And Hannah, I want to do something profoundly out of the ordinary because this episode isn't ordinary. It's extraordinary. Let me uh, explain what I mean in the sorting chat. Oh my god, Marcel, what is unusual about what we're doing right now? This is our final regular episode of which please yeah it's the end of an era so we've invited our beloved faculty to come and hang out with us and talk with us about fandoms for those who don't know the faculty club is one of our patreon tiers and uh we know our faculty club members pretty well because they have a special slack channel on our, our actual production Slack. <laughs> so we, uh, we hang out with them regularly. So this is just some, some good friends of ours. I think one of whom Marcel has met in real life, none yes. of whom I have met in real life, but that doesn't matter. An internet friend is just a friend you haven't met in real life. An internet friend is just a friend you haven't hugged yet. Yeah, that's right. So because we have the faculty here, we thought we'd use this sorting chat to uh, to hear from some of the attending faculty club members about your first fandoms. Marcel, I know we've talked about our first fandoms. I mean, I can't remember what yours is. I can't remember what yours is, but I do remember what mine is. Quick reminder, mine was Star Wars. <laughs> Oh, fantastic. Mine was a reboot. <laughs> Animated Canadian series set inside a computer. Very cool. I've always been this cool. I come from the net. Through systems, peoples, and cities. To this place. Mainframe. Okay, so faculty, tell us. What was your first fandom? And faculty are going to either unmute and tell us with their voices or they'll pop it into the chat. And I will uh, I will do my best to read it before it disappears, being replaced by another chat. <laughs> Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <gasps> oh, my God. Emily, me too. Yeah, Emily, you know what? That was, let's say, like the first LARPing I ever Ooh. did. Was um my friend my friend Brooke and I would um role play Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles except we both wanted to be April O'Neil, <laughs> so we were just two April O'Neils and four imagined turtles. Incredible! Did anybody else watch Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? And if you did, who is your favorite turtle? There's only one right answer. That's not true. There's four. There's literally I mean, four. Marcel, I feel like you're a Michelangelo guy. Do you know what? My cousins, what? my cut. Co- so no, 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 I'm not. I'm not offended. You are. You are correct that I said Michelangelo was my favorite because my cousin, it was Michelangelo was his favorite. And I admired my cousin so much and wanted to be cool. But my real favorite is Raphael because he's a tortured soul and a lone wolf. My favorite is Raphael, too. Oh, 
That's why we're friends. That is, yeah. You were not Brenda. Oh, Brenda was not. Brenda was not allowed to watch Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Too reptilian. Oh, too sexy. Those muscles. Synonyms. Synonyms. Reptilian and sexy. You know what? Means the same thing. Emily, also obviously a Raphael stan. Mm -hmm. It's less. I'm gonna say until somebody else suggests another favorite turtle, I'm just gonna say. All the cool kids like Raphael the most. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I suspect maybe the, the most successful kids liked Donatello. I was going to say that I also used to love Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, but then I stopped being allowed to watch it because it was on at the same time as my sister's favorite show. And it was all of a sudden too violent. Brenda has dropped into the chat that she was really into the Sweet Valley books and the Babysitter's Club book. <gasps> Ooh. I was absolutely a Babysitter's Club girly, for sure. Oh, you guys. But also a horse girl. So mm. I was really fucking into Saddle Club and Thoroughbred. <laughs> um, I read some of the Sweet Valley High books. I think I only ever read one or two Babysitter's Club books, but I did read a lot of Babysitter's Little Sister books. God, that's so funny. We're the same age. Why would that have been? I don't the case? Know. I'm not sure. Maybe I was just, you know, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit slow to read. I don't know. <laughs> I did not read Sweet Valley High because even as a child, I did not like reading books about popular blondes. Mm. Um, I only wanted to read books about weird <laughs> outcasts. And yet here I am, you know, close personal friends with a tall, hot, popular blonde. So. You know what? That's and gross. coach. Don't forget coach. Great point. Two tall, hot, popular <laughs> blondes. I'm not that tall. Pretty tall. <laughs> she met coach. Okay. And Jack says that one of their earliest fandoms was the Warriors books. Oh my God. The cat books. The cat books. Oh, Elliot got one for her birthday. And it was the first chapter book I think she'd ever gotten. And so she was really nervous about it. So she hasn't read it yet. But now she's like deep into the dragon books, the Wings of Fire series. You know what? Cancel the actual new podcast that we're making. I need us to make a podcast about dragons. <laughs> okay. Sorry, coach. <laughs> Speaking of things being out of the ordinary, this is the very last time we're going to make an episode with this format, which means that for the very last time, we are actually going to take the time to review some relevant materials. <laughs> we'll never do it again, but we're going to do it one last time in revision. To wrap up our conversation, we are going back to the ever important topic of fandom. So, Last time we talked about fandom, it was with Amanda Allen. Mm-hmm. Life-changing. Life-changing. Friend of the show. Great scholar. Who outlined for us two waves of fan studies scholarship. So she explained that in the first wave, fan studies identified fan practices as an example of what uh, Witch Please fave Michelle de Certeau calls <laughs> the tactics of the disempowered. You know, as opposed to the strategies of the powerful, we're all familiar with Deserto's differentiation between tactics and strategies, obviously. So we're not going to go over that again. So 
According to those early fan studies scholars, fandom was a collective strategy or like a political intervention that highlighted how fans were trying to evade and maybe even transform the dominant ideologies presented within mass media. So think about like, oh, mass media is heteronormative. And so fans come in and make it gay, for example. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the new wave of fan studies scholarship recognizes the fact that like the actual relation of fans to properties has changed really significantly because media producers have really successfully incorporated fans into their production strategies. So in this new wave of fan studies scholarship, scholars tend to treat fandoms as interpretive communities that Mm, are mm -hmm. so like not really counter public so much as just like, you know, one particular public that are embedded within and reflect the wider social, cultural and economic status quo. So like less of a sort of subversive, resistant, non-dominant other and more just kind of like an audience, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Irrespective of like the kind of resistant e things they might be doing. Yeah. Or at least you have to consider resistance as maybe one possible interpretive strategy among mm. many. So in other words, Amanda explained that fandom today is less studied as a site of resistance and subversion and more as an aspect of everyday life. Amanda also pointed out that fan fiction really complicates our understanding of authorship, uh, which is another cultural construct we've talked about very, very recently in our episode on l'auteur. 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 Will we ever stop thinking French is funny? No. No. We looked at Michelle, another Michelle, another favorite Michelle on this podcast. We looked at our all Frenchmen named Michelle. Anyway, we looked at Michel Foucault's concept of authorship as being produced discursively via the presence of the author's name on the cover of a book, which in a way makes the author function almost like a brand. You know, you can think about that when you see like a new bestseller by Stephen King. The name Stephen King is always way bigger than the title of the book. And then we added Jane Tompkins into the mix and we talked about how an author's associations, so like what circles they move in, who their mentors are, who their connections are, the relationships between their publishers and their reviewers and all of those you know, who they went to college with, how all of these things work together to impact how an author circulates discursively. Some other things we've talked about circulating are books. (gasps) Books? Which circulate like any other commodities via the logics of the market, but whose perceived value has a lot to do with how the publishing industry has strategically differentiated books books from other commodities and instead encouraged book buyers to have like a intimate personalized one might even say sentimental attachment to books and one I don't know who one could one might write a whole book about it ironically <laughs> for I
if enough people become attached to the same text and believe that its circulation speaks to them, those people become what Michael Warner, which is almost like a Michelle, but almost not French, calls a discourse public. So, Hannah, are you suggesting that fandom is a discourse public? Yeah, I am absolutely suggesting that a fandom is a discourse public. Do you agree? Yes. Yes, I do. And like other discourse publics, fandoms are inextricable from the economics of the media production industries that the texts and authors they're attached to circulate in. Oh, wait, but Hannah, haven't we been arguing throughout this entire reboot that you can engage with Harry Potter in a way that isn't feeding back into the economic value of the property? Yeah, we have. And oh, no, that's a hypothesis I think that we're going to need to test out today in our next segment. Okay, well, good thing it's today, because if it turns out that we were incorrect, we have to stop making this podcast immediately. Phew. Even though it's the last day of class and we should probably only be revising for our final exams, I'm going to break the rules and teach you a few new things in transfiguration class. So, Marcel, today I want to talk about affect and economies and affective economies and affective economics, which amazingly are two different things. But I think we need to start off by defining the terms affect and economies. So, Marcel, what is affect? So, when I introduce my students to the term affect, I tend to say that it is a term that we use when we are thinking about our feelings or our desires critically or theoretically. So, not like it's hot in here, so I feel hot, but like I am disturbed by what I've read. So why does the thing that I've read make me feel disturbed? What do you what do you think, Hannah? Yeah, yeah, I think that's perfect. You're brilliant. So what about an economy? <laughs> Fun fact, Marcel started her undergraduate degree at McGill thinking that she was going to double major in political science and economics. <laughs> That's very funny. I know. Really sounds like me, doesn't it? So economy is one of those terms that I think, so we hear it a lot and we get, we hear it referred to as a thing, right? So like, what's the, what's the term for when you, well, never mind. It's just a noun. <laughs> it's a noun. It's a it noun. is a noun. The term for when a word, when there's a word for a it's thing. It's a noun. So there are a lot of different ways that we hear the word economy used, but my understanding of economy is it is a, a system of managing available resources. So what those resources are might be you know, different in one context or another, but it's it's the process of managing available resources. What do you think, Hannah? I love that. 
I love that. You nailed it. 10 out of 10. Oh, thanks. Thanks, Oxford languages. (laughs) Thank goodness for the internet. So, (laughs) Marcel, you might be asking, what does feeling as understood theoretically and critically have to do with resources as they are managed and circulated? Were you asking that? I was definitely thinking about that. And you know what, Hannah, as the expert, I would love it if you could explain to me how those things, you know, work together, um, just to make sure that I was thinking the right thing. Good. Great. Great. Well, um, you just keep in your head what you were thinking. And then once I've explained what (laughs) Sarah Ahmed thinks, you can confirm to me that that was basically what you had in your mind anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Good. I will. So. Affect and economies. Not only have theorists thought about their relations, but they've actually thought about them in a few different ways. And I ended up getting accidentally, (laughs) accidentally pretty confused when I first started researching for this episode because I came across a number of works in the fandom sphere that was talking about effective economics. And I was already familiar with the concept of effective economies. And I thought they were the same thing. I mean, they sound very similar. Like really similar. Like one might say that there's one letter different (laughs) and one would be correct. But but theoretically, they're actually quite different. And it turns out when you put them in conversation with each other, something really neat happens. So we're going to do that, which is a fun brain experiment. So I'm going to start with the part I already knew, which is Sarah Ahmed's concept of affective economies. Great. For those who don't know, Sarah Ahmed is my personal favorite feminist scholar. I love her. I love all of her books. I interviewed her once on Secret Feminist Agenda, which was honestly a highlight of my whole life. That's a get is what that is. Yeah. Yeah. It ruled. And she has written a variety of very important works in queer theory and critical race theory and affect theory. That's kind of where she started off. Anyway, she is really interested in rethinking emotions in terms of not thinking about emotion as like a thing you have, but thinking about it in terms of circulation. Hmm. So so affect, she argues, doesn't originate from within a particular individual and then emanate outwards. So like I love and my love like beams out of me like a care bear mm, yes it does don't lie beam and then attaches to my object me. of love <laughs> you exactly i'm beaming my love at you out of the out of your cute little belly <laughs> i'm so sorry so ahmed wants us to think of emotions not as something that originates within a subject and then like beams outwards but rather as something that circulates between subjects objects signs, worlds, etc. And that through the process of circulation actually creates the effect of the boundaries through which we define our very subjectivity. So this it's wild to me that this is where you're starting because this is what you are familiar with already. Because I'm like, my brain is... This is my sweet spot. So Marcel, I'm going to ask you to read this quote from... From Ahmed. It would be my honor. Quote, affect does not reside in an object or sign, but is an effect of the circulation between objects and signs equals the accumulation of affective 
value over time. Some signs, that is, increase in affective value as an effect of the movement between signs. The more they circulate, the more affective they become, and the more they appear to contain affect. End quote. Hannah, I don't know what I just read. (laughs) Coach gets it. Liar. If I were to ask you to like rephrase that in your own words. Okay. Yeah, let me take a let me take a let me take a guess. <laughs> I'll take a guess, okay? Okay. Okay. So the value of feeling has to do with the ways in which feeling is circulated socially between people with particular types of power. So like some kinds of feelings are acceptable and therefore valuable or are acceptable and valuable in certain circumstances, whereas others are not. And so there are always going to be places where it's okay to, like, it's okay to cry at a funeral. It's not okay to cry when you're, when you are the captain of a hockey team and you get beaten by a really garbage team from Las Vegas and you won't go on to the, to finish the playoffs, even though it was your year. This is definitely part of it, is the sort of like the differential (laughs) social and cultural value of different kinds of affects, that the more an affect circulates, the more value it accrues so that affects that are really widespread and shared accrue more cultural value. And this is like nationalism, right? We can see like circulates freely and widely in a way that like accrues more value as it goes. It didn't occur to me to think of affect beyond like the sort of seven basic emotions, you know, anger, <laughs> happiness, sadness. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So affect, you know, the the actual vocabulary of feeling is quite large and nuanced and does include things like nationalism, like xenophobia. Mm-hmm as sort of, you know, something that goes hand in hand with nationalism a lot of the time. And when Ahmed talks about affect in this particular article, she is talking primarily about white supremacy. Okay. She is talking about the affective circulation of hate, fear, and suspicion of the other. Gotcha. And her point is that as the signifier of the other circulates within white supremacist circles the affect attached to that figure, say the figure of the immigrant, Mm -hmm. accrues more and more value via its, like value literally just as in like, gathers more affect around it, right? Like a snowball. Oh, okay. As it bounces around, it gathers more affect to it. Okay. And that the impression that people then have is that their fear or hatred of this other is a natural Hmm. outcropping of what that other is like. The affect that has gathered around this this sign is then treated as though it is coming from that sign. Whereas in fact, it has attached to that sign by virtue of how it has been circulating. So is that why... If one sees a circulating affect in media, for example, that 
doesn't resonate with one. <laughs> that it normal sentence that so it, far. That it become that it that like that disconnect is more visible than if the circulating discourse does resonate with one. Absolutely. So that's part of that sort of misread. And it's also, I think, part of why people argue, like, if you see something really hateful, you shouldn't share it even in the context of Mm. critiquing it Mm -hmm. because circulation gathers more affect around the thing. Mm. Okay. 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 So this is part of, like, Ahmed, like me, is a person who has argued for, like, not platforming hate speech on campus Mm -hmm. based on the premise that, like, even giving a space to, like, quote unquote, think critically about hateful ideologies can actually just give an opportunity for that thing to gain momentum. Mm -hmm. All of which is to say, when Ahmed is talking about the economies of affect, she wants to use the idea of economies to talk about circulation Mm -hmm. and the way that, like, via circulation... The affect, like a commodity, gathers value. Okay. Because, like, that's what happens when, like, things become commodities and circulate through a market. So going back to my very rudimentary definition of economy, if it's the the management of an available resource, then the affect, for example, white supremacy, the, the management of white supremacy is the economy. Oh, no, I don't know. Yeah. So in this case, like you defined economies in terms of management. Part of that management is circulation. Yes. Okay. Okay. Right. Right. Like it's not you don't have an economy through the prevention of circulation. Things have to move. Right. Right. Okay. And so it's it's that movement and that the transformative function of that movement that that Ahmed is interested in. But she's also and this is crucial. She's interested in how the circulation of commodities through economies shapes subjectivities and the worlds that we as subjects occupy. So think about, for example, the way that capitalism frames particular understandings of subjectivity Mm -hmm. by reframing the individual as an economic unit. Mm -hmm. Right. Like we understand this, that like the economic framework in which we understand ourselves frames our understanding of like what a person is and how a person lives in the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So she's she's making the same argument about affect. It's not like here we all are as these individual autonomous subjects and then we like have affects. She's like the whole idea of like what makes me me and you you and what makes us a community but somebody else not part of our community those boundaries and surfaces are actually created via how affect is circulating through us. Man, this is so complex. Yeah, you're welcome. Okay, so it's going to get simpler as we go, which is an ideal way to teach. I'm great at this. Okay, good, good, good. Sounds good. So just I just want to check, though. Does Ahmed talk about fandom? Ahmed is absolutely not talking about fandom. She is talking about white supremacy and the sort of concept of the self and other and the way that those are generated as identities through the circulation of racism as an affect. Okay, but you know who does talk about fandom? Who? Henry Jenkins. Oh, Henry Jenkins, yes. Do you know do you know Henry Jenkins? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Okay, so Henry Jenkins is a media studies scholar who's written some very important works in fan studies. 
including probably most famously his 2006 book, Convergence Culture, Where Old and New Media Collide. Mm, that sounds familiar. Yeah, I'm waiting for this moment where you're going to be like, oh, of course, Convergence Culture. I don't yeah, know. It won't, it, won't, it won't come. I remember nothing. Anyway, good. Okay, so in that book, Jenkins is interested in, to wildly oversimplify, how the internet has changed the way people interact with cultural industries. You are wildly oversimplifying or Jenkins? I'm wildly oversimplifying Jenkins' book. For me. For all of us. Because I don't want to talk about most of what he says in the book. Okay, that's that's legit. I appreciate it's, that. It's a very important book. It was, real, it was a real turning point. It was 2006. The internet was still pretty new. Mm-hmm. People were like, what is up with this? With this wild, with all these chat rooms. <laughs> what I want to focus on is the fact that he coins a phrase... Two years after Sarah Ahmed has published Effective Economies, he coins the phrase effective economics. But he means something pretty fundamentally different from what Ahmed means. Okay. So to get at what he means, Marcel, would you please read this large brick of text? Yes, I will. Quote, By affective economics, I mean a new configuration of marketing theory, still somewhat on the fringes but gaining ground within the media industry, which seeks to understand the emotional underpinnings of consumer decision-making as a driving force behind viewing and purchasing decisions. In many ways, affective economics represents an attempt to catch up with work in cultural studies over the last several decades on fan communities and viewer commitments. There is a crucial difference, however. The cultural studies work sought to understand media consumption from the fans' point of view, articulating desires and fantasies that were ill-served by the current media system. The new marketing discourse seeks to mold those consumer desires to shape purchasing decisions, end quote. Whoa. Yeah. So this maps quite well onto Amanda Allen's differentiation between the two waves of fan studies scholarship. Mm-hmm. So what do you think of this claim made in 2006, 17 years ago, that media industries might have started promoting affective economics to monetize audiences' emotional attachments to the media they love. Does that sound like it might have been a true hypothesis that Henry Jenkins was presenting? I guess the thing is that it kind of doesn't feel new to me. I, the internet is new, and the way that fandom like takes place online would have been new for sure. But like, just to give a very silly example, like you could get Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle sheets for your kid's bed in the early 90s. So like, not to say that buying sheets with your favorite characters printed on them is the same thing as having like an active and engaged fandom, but it is a way of building an emotional attachment to a media property, right? Like the child gets excited about the sheets, they get excited to go to bed, snuggle in with their like Leonardo comforter or whatever, you know? So, like, what's what's he saying that's different, I guess? So, brand loyalty is not new. Right. The idea of branding and merchandising are not new. Mm-hmm. The idea of selling stuff to fans mm-hmm. is not new. What is new is, again, the sort of economic function of it, the capacity for fan affect to circulate such that it gets back 
to media producers. They see what fans are doing. They see what fans are excited about. They create new things in response to conversations happening in the fandom and then sell that back to the fandom. So what is new and what is characterizing affective economics as Jenkins is defining them is this new capacity for fandoms to gather, communicate, and then talk back to the media industries that are creating the things that they love. So it's that capacity for responsiveness that the internet has created. Do you have any examples of where this has played out? Because I can only think of instances where it hasn't. Like all of the make it gay, you cowards, hashtag Marvel, hashtag Star Wars. Yeah, Brenda has has dropped a great example in the chat, which is the way that fandoms can successfully get shows picked back up now. Oh. Do you remember when the trailer for the Sonic the Hedgehog movie came out? And everybody online was like, absolutely not. This is profoundly cursed. And so then the studio went back and redesigned Sonic. Oh, I didn't. But that's a great example. They put like a ton of money into doing the redesign. Because people were like, no, 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 no. And that's so that's like not only is that an example of like the capacity for people to respond in a way that then influences how the media industry is is creating what they're creating. Mm-hmm. But then it also can be operationalized by that studio as a way to give fans a greater feeling of ownership. Ah. Like, we did this for you because this was co-created by you because Sonic belongs to you as much as it belongs to us. Right. Which is all this kind of like discourse that circulates in a way that then increases people's likelihood of then being like, well, I have to go see the movie. They redesigned it for me. As I keep saying to my students in my Canadian literature class right now, it's always in the service of the nation. Like it's always an attempt to make you reinvest in the nation, even if it's hypercritical of the nation. So it's like, oh, you were hypercritical of this design of this important character So if you're critical of it, that means you're probably not going to come see it. So if we then make you feel like you had a say, then not only will you come see it, but maybe you'll bring people. Yeah, it's always in this case, it's always in service of the media industry. Mm, Follow the money, baby. So here's where we get to the tricky part, because I want to experimentally put Ahmed and Jenkins in conversation. Okay. All right. Okay. And I'm going to do that kind of via a really interesting article by Matt Hills, who is a professor of fandom studies in the UK. And he has this relatively recent article about the Veronica Mars movie. Mm -hmm. Do you remember when they like successfully crowdfunded the making of a Veronica Mars movie? One of the ways the crowdfunding worked was via the producer positioning himself as a fan like everyone else Mm, mm -hmm. and being like, I'm a fan of this. I love this property. I want us to be able to make more stories together. So let's all work together and make this thing. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, somebody's going to make money off it. Mm -hmm. So he has this really interesting article about this, like the Veronica Mars movie and crowdfunding and effective economics in the Jenkins sense. Mm -hmm. Mm hmm. And in it, he introduces what is going to be our final concept for today. Ooh, okay. He introduces the idea of the love mark. 
Have you heard of a love mark? I had not before, and I'm disgusted. It's not a hickey. It's not. That would be way more fun. I wouldn't be disgusted by that. Those are cute. (laughs) Love marks are a marketing concept created by Kevin Roberts, CEO of a marketing company. Gross. He wrote a whole book about it. I think he won a prize for writing a book about it. Oh, my. Gross. And his argument is that love marks are replacing brands. Oh. So he writes, quote, creating loyalty beyond reason. Rude. Requires emotional connections that generate the highest levels of love and respect for your brand. End quote. So a love mark is a like, it's not a brand. It's not a trademark. It's a love mark. So Marcel, last quote I'm going to make you read. This is from Matt Hill's article. Quote, I will consider how crowdfunding currently enables the paratextual repositioning of showrunners slash media professionals labor as a type of fan-like love mark. Hence, discursively decommoditizing the industrial exchange value of media texts. At the same time, however, crowdfunding also assigns exchange value to fans' desire for new installments of beloved texts, calling upon and normalizing the self commodification of fan sentiment and use value. End quote. Ooh, hot. What a bummer. You want to parse that? You want to parse that for us? I think what he's saying is that showrunners and media professionals are positioning themselves publicly as fans who just want to make more stuff, sort of like the Veronica Mars example you gave. They just want to, you know, make more stuff for the other fans. They just happen to be in a position where they can make more stuff if only they had the money. So if audiences wanted to contribute with money, then they would be able to make the thing. And so what this does is it commodifies fan desire in a way that wouldn't exist if the fan didn't have the capacity to contribute in some way, to a, a new production of of something that they like? Yeah, absolutely. So basically, it's a sort of strategy for swapping out the exchange of money with the exchange of affect, so that you're like, this is really just about like circulating the way that we all love this thing, so that we can sort of like not, don't look directly at the money, even while like we're literally just talking about money. Yeah, so like it's it makes you think you're swapping out money for affect, but the money's still there. It's still money. It's just money with a smiley face on it. Smiley it's money with a love mark on it. It's money with a love mark on it. Gross. A little kiss. Yeah. And then if media producers are fans just like us, then we are working with them to help make more media that we all love. Mm-hmm including by financing it ourselves, such that the exchange of capital becomes synonymous with love. But I do I do have a, a little question, though. What do we do with the possibility that showrunners and producers, for example, are, in fact, fans of the property that they want to, you know, revitalize? I think understanding how a discourse circulates is not the same as saying, 
oh, look, this is circulating in a particular way. That means it's a lot. Ah, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As anti-capitalists, I think we're really used to being like, ah, this thing is circulating via capitalism. And so it must be a trick, (laughs) which is a a strong instinct. That is 100% what I was thinking in in the previous paragraph. Yeah, it's a good, strong instinct Mm -hmm. to be very suspicious Mm -hmm. that like somebody tries to sell you something, they probably are lying to you somehow. Yeah. And simultaneously, all artists are currently functioning within capitalism. Yeah. Like us. And so, (laughs) yeah, I mean, we all are, right? Like there's there's absolutely no outside to the system. There is no outside to ideology. There is no outside to capitalism. You can't be like, actually, thank you. I'm just going to opt out. I don't like this. You know, it makes me feel complicit and that's icky. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to not do capitalism, but the rest of you enjoy. (laughs) And so this kind of critique is not about being like, look at these bad actors. Mm -hmm. Look at these. Look at these jerks who love the things that they're making and know (laughs) that other people also love them and are using that love as a way to get money to keep making the thing. Can you imagine what a nightmare? Despicable. I'm being ironic because it's what because it's what because it's literally how Patreon works. And crowdfunding works. Like crowdfunding has been really effectively developed as a direct result of web 2.0 mm-hmm. and the way that it allows fan communities to not only gather and communicate with each other but to talk back to creators. Like this is all this is all real. And to the point that you were bringing up earlier about Henry Jenkins. That part is new. Yes. Absolutely. So this brings us back to Ahmed because we can see here how effectively affect is accumulated via its circulation between signs. So say a beloved property, say Veronica Mars, that the effect of its circulation, so between different members of the fandom and then between the fandom and the creator, between the show and the movie, right? As it circulates, it gathers more affective charge to it. The affect accumulates via circulation between signs and subjects, beloved property and fans of said property, in a way that generates both the meaning of those signs and the identities of the subjects. So the fandom is transformed by virtue of the particular ways that affect moves back and forth. Mm. Your identity as a fan is shaped by the ways that you're able to interact with the object in question. What it means to be a fan is different when you can communicate directly to the creator, when you can contribute directly to the creation of a new version of the thing that you love. So your actual identity as a fan is transformed by this new possible affective economy. And the more possibilities of interaction and exchange, the stronger potentially that affect becomes. So we get the sort of new possibilities for the circulation of affect via the effective economics that Jenkins is talking about. 
But via those new possibilities, we can also get the formation of new kinds of subjects and new kinds of signs in terms of how Ahmed is talking about it. And Ahmed reminds us that as these affects circulate and define new communities and new worlds, they keep gathering value via their circulation. Is this making sense? Yes, I think it makes sense. I think I think I'm getting there. I think. Okay. Okay. So where this leads me is to a question. And that question is, if affect accumulates value through the circulation of signs and affective value has become one of the primary movers of the fan economy, then is there any such thing as a kind of fandom that does not add value to the circulating sign, even if it isn't directly financially supporting the property? I think that that is a question that we should explore by looking at a specific example. You know what? Great idea, Marcel. It's time to put our new or pending theoretical knowledge to the test. So for the last time ever, sharpen your quills, uncork your ink, and get ready for owls. So we've got, I assume, a number of fanish types here in the Zoom with us. And I'm hoping to hear from them as well, though, obviously, no pressure. I don't believe in calling on students by name and pressuring them into answering. But while people gather their thoughts, Marcel, yes, I want to hear yours, particularly from the perspective of someone who has been making a Harry Potter podcast on and off for the past eight years. Well, so one of the things that we both remarked on a number of times is the sort of fond ways that we talked about rolling in our first first iteration of the podcast and how that doesn't feel good. No, we really treated her like a hashtag girl boss and it was a hashtag bad look. I think having having rebooted the podcast and we've we've talked about this a little bit. We talked about this when we had our various uh, guest appearances on various radio media to talk about the new Harry Potter TV show that HBO, which is no longer called HBO, whatever the fuck, it, the you know, you know what I mean, the new show. I do know the H- the new HBO show. And we talked about how we ourselves really had to grapple with whether or not it made sense for us to go forward with with our with our plan to reboot the podcast in light of JK Rowling's explicit transphobia because up until that point there was a lot of like well maybe she means something different or like it's not explicitly transphobic it's just like narrow-minded or like but then it, it like the, we really tried like she got so much more benefit of the doubt than everybody else there was a lot of like well maybe she just is confused and bad at the internet so yeah so i think we've both been we've we've both been open about the fact that like it does feel complicated and the way that we have uh the way that we have moved forward with our podcast has has been 
thoughtful, but probably still imperfect. Like we can tell our listeners not to buy anything or download anything legally for the purposes of like catching up on an episode. But like at the same time, like we are actually we're we are making a we are making a podcast about this media property, media empire. And it's this contribution to the circulation of affect that I keep coming back to, right? The sort of the difference between like if I was just quietly reading fan fiction or rereading the books and sort of having feelings about it, that is a Mm -hmm. different thing than producing media about the property that continues to circulate the affect. Mm -hmm. You know, there's sort of a question at the base here of like, what is the function of critique? And does critique, Mm -hmm. does critique of a thing ultimately contribute to the ongoing circulation of that thing and that is like that's a a big question that is i think beyond what we'll be able to tackle in the next 15 minutes but i think it's worth thinking about really in the case of this very particular property that is both unusually popular she said in the understatement of the year <laughs> and unusually harmful because of the because of the identity and the politics of the creator and so it does become this this particularly intensified case study of is there any form of media production engagement recirculation of affect even when critical that doesn't contribute to the ongoing circulation of this property as one that is shaping communities, defining identities. You know, are we keeping these books canonical in a way that we don't necessarily want to be doing? I think it's a really interesting question. And I I think you're right. There's some level of contribution to recirculation that's unavoidable. But for me, as I consider myself a former fan. I invested an obscene amount of time and uh, energy and sadly money into this property. And this is the only Harry Potter thing I do anymore. And it's because I at least can get some good out of all of that time that I invested into the property by learning something uh, new in terms of theory from my familiarity with the books and you know being able to use that as an application. What you're saying, Emily, makes me think about the function that Witch Please has played as a space for fans to grieve. <laughs> like every guest that we've had on the show has given some version of I was really in love with these books and now I'm real sad about them. That's so you're right, Marcel. I didn't think as as I have been thinking about the sort of circulation of affect, I didn't think about grief and mm-hmm. how much of the way that these signs are circulating through these communities right now is that we are the affect that is accreting. You're welcome. <laughs> is grief and loss and like that that also in some ways needs a space to circulate 
and to be to be processed because of how intensely attached so many of us became to these books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The the other piece, Emily, of what you said that is really interesting is this idea of like, like, I've sunk all of this value into this thing. Is there any final value to be <laughs> extracted from it before I sell all of my stocks and leave town? <laughs> is there anything there? And this is where I quite like thinking via sort of Ahmed's understanding, which is She's thinking about value attaching to the sign as it circulates, but the value is not always explicitly economic value. So we can also think about, and people have thought about, you know, the circulation, for example, of educational value, that the widespread awareness of this series has been really useful for teachers for a long time. It's a way to get kids Mm -hmm. who are reluctant readers to pick up books. You know, it has been really successful in that, in that way. And Mm -hmm. that like we are doing a version of that, right? That like we sort of recognize this educational potential in this widespread and and well-known series and learning together is another form of the circulation of, of, af- of different kinds of affects and that, you know, we have in very real ways, Marcel, you and I like become different people through the making of this project, um, become members of different communities. And the thing itself, the thing that is Harry Potter has transformed for us because of the way that it has circulated between us, between us and listeners. So, it really is for me a question. Like it's not when I say, is there a way we can engage with this without sort of just adding value back into the Harry Potter industrial complex? Like it's not a leading question. Like, haha, got you guys. We're all complicit in capitalism. <laughs> like, yeah, no, I know. I know. You didn't know. We already, we did all already know that. Like it's a real question. Are there ways, particularly that, that thinking with Ahmed can help us understand that like we can actually attach different affects to this thing. We can think about its movement differently. Or is that so inevitably monetized? Like, does it feed so inevitably back into, you know, the ongoing sales of these books, for example? For me, it's less about the fandom and Harry Potter, but how, which please allows me to engage with it. And through the reboot, actually finding a whole new thing that I'm now excited about, which is critical theory, which I'm not an academic or like language scholar or any of that sort. So that's all that was all new for me and quite a ride. And now that's very exciting for me that I want to just keep learning uh, from you all about for, for the rest of what the future brings for this uh, for this group. And I'm thankful for Harry Potter to to bring this together and make that that's a new value I get out of like literal value I get out of this. But at the same time, at least until you have the new podcast going, if I want to enthusiastically share this value with it, I always have to put in the caveat, but it's in the context of Harry Potter. And wouldn't like when I share this on social media, 
and I, I'm not like I, I'm I'm very open about the things I share on social media with the, the things I like, but I'm very hesitant about which please, because I always have to put in seven caveats about the the things that you have now in your FAQ on the website, and now including that when I do that, but I still have like lots of trans friends that and that would like nope i'm a i'm an absolutist on absolutely no harry potter in my life please fuck off and that's fine um so i'm not just like i can't fangirl which please uh unquestionably at this point but can't wait for the new podcast sorry i'm starting to ramble (laughs) (laughs) i mean you make me immediately think Jan, about also you know the way we treat critical theory in this series because like we take these ideas and are like cool what an interesting idea let's play with it but then somebody might come back and be like you know Jacques Derrida was a horrible person right and it's like yeah actually yeah fit I for sure like a lot of these theorists that we take up you know themselves it's like do we replace one thing with another thing in a way that I mean, he's dead, so it's maybe not a great, maybe not a great comparison. But it is, I think, the eternal intellectual crisis of the person who's critical about, like, the question of how ideas circulate to eventually just um, back yourself into a tiny little discursive corner where you're like, but now I'm circulating the idea of circulation. (laughs) Oh, no. <laughs> oh no, have I fetishized the notion of critical theory? Hey Marcel, here's a question. Are you allowed to love anything and be critical? I know that's something we used to say, but do we still believe it? Yes. I love my cat and I'm very critical of her when she poops on the floor. I love her so much, but she's such a bitch. So I'm curious with Sarah Ahmed, Hannah, if you know, like, does she discuss at all when an affective value, I don't know if that's the right terminology for it, is has reached its limit, which is to say, do we mostly agree that no one discovers Harry Potter through witch please? And right, like that, that being like a basic idea. So in terms of this idea of like snowballing, like when people, if we think of that snowball, like come across witch please, what are they picking up? Like financially, she's not picking up anything. She's picking up maybe more people who know about Harry Potter, but 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 is that true? Does anybody come across which place who doesn't already know Harry Potter? The odds of somebody listening to our podcast and saying, this Harry Potter book sounds interesting. I think I'll give it a go feels low. It does, it does feel low. And so what I'm what I'm wondering to sort of backtrack to grief again is and maybe maybe a, a question that I have, I don't know, something that I would that I would like to believe. You know how like memorials and funerals and celebrations of life are are a time to come together and like like mourn your time with the person who has passed. And it doesn't make it doesn't it doesn't like it's still you're still sad, you know, you still grieve them. And so what I wonder is if we haven't unintentionally been making like a three year long (laughs) funeral. (laughs) I wonder, I wonder, I would like to believe that folks who maybe, I know this is true for me at the beginning of the reboot, I was having a lot of trouble acknowledging that I couldn't keep 
engaging with the Harry Potter universe in the same way anymore. That it that I was going to have to let it go, and it was really hard. And I don't feel that same struggle now. And so I wonder if maybe that's something that we have helped people with. To get back, I mean, to Coach's excellent question and, and to how Ahmed thinks about, about circulation, you know, one of the really key things that she's thinking about is that the affect doesn't come out of the individual and it doesn't come out of the sign. So Harry Potter itself is not inherently linked to grief, inherently linked to joy, inherently linked to, right? Like it's not producing the way we feel about it. And we're not producing the way we feel about it. Our feeling is a function of the way that it circulates back and forth. And so we have spent three years bouncing this sign that is Harry Potter back and forth between us, you know, you, me, coach, our guests, our listeners. And as we have been doing that, how we feel about it has changed, right? It's not just like, yeah, the sign continues to, the sign, you know, being Harry Potter, continues to gather affects around it, but the affects that it has gathered have become, for us at least as a community, much more complex, Mm -hmm. much more nuanced, much more full of, you know, grief and critique and you know all of these other kinds kinds of of affects and ultimately where it seems to have at least led us you know as a team but it's it seems like at least you know the the people who are here on the zoom with us are in a similar place is that has led us to a point of being like okay i'm actually done with this thing and that's interesting mm-hmm. to think about a mode of circulation and recirculation that actually hasn't led to us being more intensely identified with or attached to this mm-hmm. sign, but to actually being ready to kind of collectively be like, okay, maybe we want to set this down and just yeah. be done with it. Maybe it has been three years of relationship therapy and we finally have gotten the closure (laughs) that we need to move on with our lives we finally accepted that the fallacy of sunk costs is indeed a fallacy Mm. 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 oh it's such a tempting fallacy though i know (laughs) so to bring in jenkins though if his idea is that with affective economics there is a relationship between fans and producers of content and which is to say also like people making a finance getting gaining the financial reward of it and that because since the because of the internet we are more responsive and er, everybody can kind of be more responsive like fans are always responsive but now producers can be as responsive is there an element of like okay so under late capitalism there's there's like on the one hand sarah the sarah ahmed question on the other hand the question of like who the Harry Potter fandom is, is now shaping what Harry Potter content gets created. So like, which please is created because of not Harry Potter, the original JK Rowling enterprise, but because of the fans who felt alienated from that franchise creating, which please 
Does that make sense? Like, like it's not top down and that it is responsive. And so with that in mind, even though it's very sad to think that like we're all under capitalism, so this is the way it has to be. It's like some, there's some recognition that like if content is to be made, it's not, a, it wasn't necessarily a choice on not to shirk responsibility, but like between of you two, Hannah and Marcel being like, this is a needed podcast, but being responsive to a fandom that was like, where do I put this thing now? I don't know where to invest. I don't know, like, I don't know where to put this now. Yeah. So I'm trying to make sense of Jenkins in relation to that. Yeah. And I think, you know, Jenkins is one of these like, you know, later phase in fan studies pointing out the way that fandom has gotten incorporated into the industry. But that doesn't mean that we have to throw out the whole idea of the possible subversiveness and resistance of fan practices. And what I see happening when we think about how like via Jenkins idea that there can be sort of grassroots ground up production emerging out of fandoms, we can look at, for example, communities of Harry Potter fan fiction writers who at this point have fics that are more canonical for them than the original books and who read and engage with that work without returning to the source text, without granting the source text any kind of higher status. And that those become communities that have sort of their own logics and their own signs and their own, you know, their own affects that they're circulating in a way that that not only is not necessarily putting money back into that property, but that is doing things with the property that the creator would hate, which is very fun. And that what we can see happening, and this is the sort of the part I think that is really worth keeping our eye on, is that there is a component of Warner Brothers right now that is paying very close attention to how the fandom is talking and is trying to figure out how to create new media for us to consume that responds to how we are feeling and what we want and are trying to frame it very deliberately by doing things like distancing themselves from rolling, downplaying her participation in things, foregrounding people who are critical of her, who are doing things that are a very clear response to these conversations and trying to use that feedback from fan communities to create more stuff for us to consume. We can see it happening. It's just that we then have the choice to be like, I think you know. I know thank you not for me. I work on a few farms um, and something that is that comes up a lot is uh, the importance of letting things die when the time comes and not trying to hold on to things past their time. And so with respect to thinking about which please as a context in in which we can grieve Harry Potter, it seems really right and important. I'm also in academia. And so I and my colleagues, um, other grad students are often thinking about this question of what to do with uh, attaching oneself and one's work to a problematic discipline to say, am I, am I starting a new discipline? Is my work something else or is my work part of this larger structure? 
that is oppressive and is inherently white supremacist and you know all these other things and it doesn't seem clear like what the what the answer is Um, different people sort of choose differently um, which can be interesting to to see pan out Mm -hmm, totally I, i mean even i don't know hannah and i have talked about this before about how even like academia as as a space is also like, am I, do I want to align myself with this institution that still, however it promises to welcome a plurality of voices, is always excluding people for various different reasons in various contexts? Yeah, there's there's a desire, I think, when we have gotten into the business of critique, critical thinking, or really in into whatever work it is that we're doing, when we've gotten into that work out of a motivation to try to make the world like even the tiniest little bit better, just the tiniest bit less harmful, just like, you know, just scooch the needle (laughs) just a little bit, that then sort of recognizing that you were in some way contributing to a harmful system, there's so often, I I, I think for folks like us, is this desire to be like, oh, well, I'll just... I'll exit that system altogether, right? Like, I don't want to, yeah. it's bad, it's bad, <laughs> so I won't, I won't have anything to do with it. Um, you know, Brenda made this this point earlier in the chat about sort of the the betrayal of the Harry Potter fandom then making it hard to sort of fully unabashedly love anything mm-hmm. because isn't yeah. that embarrassing? Aren't you making yourself vulnerable? Aren't you setting yourself up for failure by <laughs> loving something wholly, isn't it kind of a safer place to work from of just being like, oh, me, I'm attached <laughs> to nothing. <laughs> would be amazing and is not, I mean, wouldn't be amazing, would be a nightmare. It's just, it's not the it's not the human condition. And again, this is where I find, you know, Ahmed's not saying like signs accumulate value by circulation and therefore stop circulating signs. It's not like, oh, our subjectivity and worlds are created through the circulation of affect. So quick, everybody stops circulating affect. Like that's not the, (laughs) that's not the point. The point is like, attend, attend to how this is operating. The better we understand how these systems work, the better a chance we have of intervening in even the smallest way into them. So maybe that is understanding in the context of academia how disciplinarity is formed and being like, okay, I need to actually look at my subdiscipline and be like, what is the power of the discipline? What is the actual material power of the discipline? Where is it gathering value? And if I know that, can I intervene better? Are there choices that are more nuanced than full participation or complete disavowal. <laughs> and I think there's got to be. Yeah, I mean I think if if we think about if we think about relationships, if we think about having relationships with people and learning that as many of us have had to do over the last 20 years, learning that out, sometimes we have relationships with people who turn out to be hateful or harmful or causing harm that the answer isn't to just not have friendships 
or not have community, right? It's that you need to respond when you learn about these things. And yeah, and that and that context change, right? And this is really vital. Like the Harry Potter industrial complex was not what it is now when we started reading it and loving it. It just wasn't. It wasn't the size it is. It wasn't the scope it is. It wasn't backing the political movements it is now. Like none of that was the case. So it's not a matter of like, I was wrong back then. How embarrassing. I should never have publicly liked a thing because how shameful now. Because the world changes and we change with it. What a great point, Hannah. Oh my God, thank you. It's almost like once we realize that we create worlds through the circulation of affect, it means that we can more deliberately make the worlds that we want. Huge if true. Huge if true. Huge if true. Thank you, witches, for joining us for another episode of Witch Please. If you have questions, comments, concerns, or praise, 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 come hang out with us at Oh Witch Please on Instagram or Twitter. We are also on Patreon at patreon.com slash Oh Please, where you can get lots of cool exclusive perks, including the pilot episode of the new podcast. Woo! Witch Please is, shockingly, surprisingly, unbelievably, a Witch Please production and is distributed by Acast. You can find the rest of our episodes and soon the rest of our podcasts at Acast or at ohwitchplease.ca. Here are some other things that you can do at ohwitchplease.ca. You can sign up for our amazing newsletter. It comes out every month. It's the monthly hoot. And I literally had a dream about it while I was in my gravel-induced stupor. You can also access our transcripts. You can check out our merch. You can find reading lists for particular episodes. It's great. And it's going to keep being great. Might even get greater. Oh, Marcel, get ready for the amount of names I'm going to make you. I'm making you read. Mm-hmm. Special thanks to everyone on the Witch Please team, including our digital projects coordinator, Gabby Iori, our social media manager and marketing designer and transcriber, Zoe Mix, our sound engineer, Eric Magnus, and our executive producer, Hannah Rehack, aka Coach. Because this is a very special episode, instead of shouting out the folks who left us reviews, we're going to shout out the members of the faculty club, some of whom were able to join us today. All right. Thank you to Becky Boo, Brenda P., Carolyn W., Catherine M., Elizabeth S., Emily K., Emily T. N., Ethan B. H., Heather S.V., Jack, Jan L., Jeanette B., Jojo M., Josie L., Caroline R.J., Kelsey K., Kimberly S., Lindsay, Lisa T., Liz H., Lucas C., Meg Cat 33, Noah Z.R., Rachel R., and Samantha M. Please enjoy 
a snifter of your favorite beverage in the threadbare velvet wingback chair on us, metaphorically. We'll be back next episode for our very final wrap up. But until then, witches!